this is definitely an odd subject of the podcast. I've got some soda water with me, considering I got a really bad case of heartburn, as well as one of those really bloody annoying lumps in your throat that honestly just feels like a pocket of air, and you can't stop burping, and I honestly hope that the majority of times I'm going to be able to talk and at least get something out will give me some relief, but... If I do end up going in an uncontrollable fit of burping rage, then I'll hopefully edit that out so I'm the only one that has to deal with that. So, uh, anyways, hello. Welcome back to Anime on the Sea to Sky. Um, It's been um, an interesting couple of weeks trying to basically catch up on all the stuff that I missed when I was away out in Ontario, as well as trying to comprise a handful of episodes so at least I can feel like I've caught up to a bit of the gap that I was able to experience. So not only will I have an episode coming out today, I'm also going to be... Uh, putting out an episode on October 31st, so which is technically less than a week away, but at this point in time, I've at least got an idea like set up for it, and if you listen to the previous podcast, I would imagine you know what it's going to be leading into it, but I should be able to get it done in the meantime. So regardless, surprisingly enough, over the past week, there have been quite a few news stories that have definitely piqued my interest in particular, and I guess I'll start out with um, the more negative ones in the beginning, considering that, yes... There was a new um, live-action Cowboy Bebop uh, teaser coming in called Lost Session, and this is the first piece of promotional material that I've watched leading into the live-action Cowboy Bebop series. It was definitely split right down the middle for me, and I think somebody who ended up commenting on uh, the video thread put it succinctly that it was directorially amazing, but tonally dissonant. Or sorry, it felt as technically impressive as it was as tonally dissonant. Because the editing, the lineup, the camera work, and, like, setting up all the characters, like, in a similar way to how it is in the OP, but also in a unique way to kind of give it its own feel, was honestly astounding. The direction of this teaser was phenomenal, as well as the production that was brought into it. But the issues that I had was just the way the characters were, like, incredibly buddy-buddy, way too familiar, way too just into this what seemed like a buddy cop kind of atmosphere was really something that kind of threw me off. And I don't, I don't, I don't know, it, it just really felt awkward to me like leading into this where it's just kind of like, I know it's promotional material, I know that this is not going to be the end uh, feeling for the product, but it still didn't necessarily help me get into any more of feeling excited for this series to actually come out. But regardless, I will keep my eyes and ears open once it finally premieres on Netflix on November 19th, because we will be getting 10 sessions or 10 episodes coming out in the meantime, and I will be interested, at the very least, to see how this kind of adaptation is translated over to Netflix. And unfortunately, leading with more bad news, the voice actor Chris Ayers ended up passing away just a couple of weeks ago, and he was only 56. He was a voice actor, regular actor, director, fight choreographer, but unfortunately he was diagnosed with end-stage COPD, chronic obtrusive pulmonary disease, and that was four years ago back in 2017. He did end up getting a lung transplant uh, two years later back in November of 2019, but unfortunately he had to go through continued medication, treatment, as well as including unexpected follow-up surgeries. And this guy has been around for a while. He was the original voice of Frieza in Dragon Ball Z, as well as Dragon Ball Super and the Broly films, and also voiced characters as well in Gantz, Tomiko Market, Gintama movies, Panty and Stalking with Garter Belt, as well as Initial D. He was a mainstay at many U.S. and basically North American anime conventions hosting panels, such as Mock Combat for Cosplay, 
a fight director for stage plays, stage combat at middle school, high school, and colleges, and consistently going through and contributing to the industry in any other way that he could. Even though I had only felt an influence from only a handful of his works in Dragon Ball Z, I would imagine he is going to be surely missed from the majority of the fandom who were able to indulge in more of his works to that end. But leading into a handful of announcements that ended up for shows and dubs leading into the rest of it, the original Lupin the Third uh, franchises, including parts one and two, essentially ended up getting licensed and will now have English dubs attributed to them leading into it, as well as those voices being the English set-ins for part six that is currently airing this season, which we will get to later. So since I Filmworks is the one that ended up picking the licensing and distribution sets for it, and I'm really curious to see how that's actually going to do, and hopefully it kind of succeeds to kind of bring back a much earlier version of Lupin, as not only as not only does the Green Jacket make its debut in Part 1, it's also calling back and calling full circle in the terms of Part 6 that is airing currently. Since now we end up getting the origin of Lupin's Green Jacket leading up through Part 1 and coming full circle with the new adventures that we're going to be experiencing this season in Part 6. Now there are definitely a handful of high-profile manga adaptations that are coming out this season, but one really weird one that I had absolutely no interest in getting into initially, but kind of charmed me and won me over over a couple of weeks reading it, being quoted as, My Dress Up Darling is definitely a weird title and something that's a little off-putting to say the least. It definitely got me interested considering that the two main characters who are in high school both have incredibly niche interests in comparison to us over here, but are a lot more traditional and a lot more of a mainstay like coming in through Japan, considering that considering that our main character Gojo is an artesian for very traditional dolls leading in through Japan as the new girl that is essentially like busted in on finding out his new hobby is a real high-profile cosplayer. And even though they're both incredibly niche in their own way, the fact that the passion of one leads into the passion of another, and both of them can f kind of find a good leeway and a good connection between the passions that they both have for the respective niches that they're able to go through, makes for a really interesting and heartfelt sort of um, camaraderie that you see these two come into for one another, and as they're able to help each other in their own respective fields, it's honestly a really fun little story that plays out, especially considering that apparently its adaptation is going to be going through in next seasons of anime for winter 2022 out in January. So honestly, I don't know how this adaptation is going to roll through, but I don't know. I'm definitely going to give it a watch because I am definitely a fan of the source material. But now for sequel series, specifically season threes of high-profile shows, we're not only getting one, but two of them over the past week. And the first one, which I would imagine is going to come to no surprise to many, but is definitely a breath of fresh air considering that now this is finally being announced, is that Kaguya-sama Love is War is going to be getting its third season, and is planned for an April 2022, or in this case, a spring 2022 premiere. And still been keeping up with the manga. The manga's definitely been interesting considering that it is leading into its final arc. So that is going to be coming on the conclusion of the series over the next couple of months, but at least until then, 
the returning cast and staff members of the first two seasons are also going to be a part of this production, and so I definitely have no qualms and no concerns knowing that there is going to be another fantastic season of Kaguya-sama just being waited to be adapted. But the one season three that I felt that I knew was going to get a third adaptation and a final adaptation, but was still concerned that it had been ages since it had finally ended up coming through and finally got the green light, was that Mob Psycho 100 is finally going to get its third and final season with a new director like jumping onto the main production cast. Which was kind of concerning to me initially, but that doesn't mean that they're going to be the main one calling the shots, considering that the original two seasons previous director, Yuzuru Tachikawa, is the one who's going to take up the executive director spot with the new with a new additional director, Takahiro Hasui, who previously did Skate the Infinity, as well as Bungo Stray Dogs, which are also two, honestly, above-average uh, productions that Bones has done in the past. It's definitely nice to see that this kind of skill is being added onto the production crew on top of everything else, considering that we still got the series composition, character designer, sound director, and music composer all coming back and reprising their roles for this new season. But not only this new season, this final season, considering that this is going to be interesting for me, considering how much I really enjoyed the first two seasons of Mob Psycho 100, but this is going to be a conclusion. And for the first time in a long time, we are going to be getting a manga adaptation to a work that is all done, all wrapped up, all concluded, and has no set boundaries laid out before it. The story will end. And that was one of the main reasons why it took so long and why a lot of people were concerned, considering that even though I don't know the ending and I haven't read the ending... Checking in on how many chapters that the original two seasons were able to adapt basically pointed out that there was only about 10 to 15% of the work that was left to be adapted. And we had already gone through such a large majority of it in those first two seasons that the people who had actually read the story and were really interested in kind of seeing how this was going to go didn't really expect it to get any major television conclusion since there was just so few uh, chapters left to adapt. So they're probably going to be padding an episode or two with a handful of stories to kind of just give it a more uh, through-line feel. I honestly wouldn't be too downtrodden about it, even if there was only, like, say, ten episodes throughout the final run of this series, but I am really excited to kind of see where they decide to take this and where this goes, considering that a conclusion, a legitimate conclusion of an adaptation is so rare in anime nowadays that any of us get any sort of major conclusive ending to any of these stories that we end up consuming, considering that they're either adaptations of previous works that are just looking to work as advertisement for the source material, or just something that's incredibly original and overambitious so that we never get something that's satisfying. So here's to hoping when this ends up coming out, I believe next year, so nothing yet. I would assume that if that's going to be the case then we're probably going to get this at the end of next year or at the beginning of 23. I don't care, as long as they take as much time as they need and make it a worthwhile conclusion that it hopefully deserves. So now leading into the main part of the show, the fall 2021 anime season is already well underway and is without a doubt packed for anything you would be expected. You've got second seasons, you've got new adaptations, you've got originals, you've got short four coma bits, and you've also got long uh, movie transitions, but thankfully, as it seems, there's definitely something for everybody here. But 
for shows in particular in the sense that I can't necessarily talk about because I haven't really watched too much about it and I haven't given it the time yet to kind of like deep dive into it too far. So just to break the ice here, I haven't watched any of Mushoku Tensei, so I'm not going to be catching up in the second season. I haven't watched the first season of 86 either, so the second season is definitely moot for me. Um, I do know that Platinum End is the same uh, dynamic duo that ended up giving us Death Note, but so far I haven't necessarily heard amazing things coming out of the original series or the adaptation that's preceding it. So I think unless it really decides to wow everybody like by the halfway point of the season, I think I'll just let everybody go through and form their own opinions on that. And then Miracle-chan is something that I planned to watch, but after going through the first episode, definitely threw me a bit for a loop, considering that this is a basic story about a high school girl who unfortunately can see ghosts, except not in a Ghibli sort of sense, like very smooth, fantastical, somewhat of a more positive way. These yokai and creatures and ghouls that she ends up unfortunately coming into contact with more like Lovecraftian horror than anything else. The manga, as well as the anime's adaptation, the ghouls that end up coming out of these are just downright terrifying and is more than enough puts you in the shoes of our main character where it's understandable that she is just absolutely scared shitless and the only way that she can deal with these is just assume that they're not there and then just try and ignore them and maybe they'll go away which doesn't necessarily work with too many of the problems but thankfully for the majority of the time it does for her safety the only awkward part about it is that even though it is very understandable for say like slasher horrors and like very classic horror to go through and really form out the sexuality aspect of it but throughout all these teenagers that get brutally scared and murdered the fact that the amount of fan service and the uh, just the um, sheer amount of sexuality in these series to act as kind of like a gap between point A and B to just fill it in is like it does not need to be this fucking horny like it is really just not helping it in any semblance of the word and I don't know if it was just either the composer or the director that kind of thought like okay we can't necessarily like fill we don't know what to fill these gaps with considering that it's going to be pretty boring between one scare to the next just throw them into the girl's locker room, throw, like, give her, like, childhood friend much more screen time and much more emphasis on her assets, and it's like, oh my god, this isn't helping anybody. So it's like, I hope they focus more on the main character's struggle and the horror in that aspect and kind of shy away from it, but it is kind of unfortunate that they have to fill out an entire 24 episode, or 24 minute runtime with a lot of this stuff, but it's just kind of like, man, this is not what I was thinking and not thinking for the route that they decided to go on. Like, oh my goodness. Now, the only show that I haven't necessarily watched yet, but I've heard surprisingly good things about, like, leading into it, is um, Osama Ranking or King's Ranking. And it's an incredibly simple tale, with simple character outlooks, simple shading, but with really well, like, storybook-esque environments and storytelling, is kind of interesting to see how this is uh, translating into the adaptation, considering that it's basically our main character is a young child who cannot hear. He's completely deaf, and he is not somebody who is able to survive in the world that he has been committing in. He can't wield a sword. He's not strong enough. He's not careful enough to essentially go through, but he is a prince. 
he is next in line and a typical heir to the throne leading into what is going to be, of course, the most important stature of this entire kingdom. And his father before him was able to keep the enemies at bay and essentially protect those that were closest to him, but him's time on the throne is coming to an end, and he's going to have to give it up to one of his two sons. And of course, nobody is expecting this young child to be anywhere close to being a fit for the throne leading into it, even after he's able to start learning how to communicate and trying to be like better informative with the people around him after he meets who is essentially just a shadow on the ground, and it, which is a definitely weird choice for your familiar, but it's, I don't know. All I've heard is nothing but positive things like leading into it, on top of the fact that they really go all out in the semblance that, okay, the kid's deaf. We are going to introduce this form of communication, or lack of, and have it as a legitimate problem towards the rest of his subjects, but he does still have a courier that apparently just consistently communicates to him through sign language. And I'm really curious to see like how he's going to either have to improve his communication skills and learn to speak, or if this is going to be the way that he's going to have to communicate to all of his future subjects. And I don't know, it's definitely one of those series that I'm going to wait until the halfway point in the season, give it another month and a half or so just to kind of see how the story builds up for the rest of it, and then maybe decide to jump in. But currently that is the series that I have not watched yet that definitely shows the most promise. Now, the shows that I am watching definitely have a bit of a mix when it comes to, I don't know, different genres, different ideas, different studios, different sequels, different adaptations. It's definitely at least covering a wider variety, but definitely not in the ways I was expecting to at the beginning of the season. But regardless, I guess the easiest way to get out of the way that I'm not necessarily watching all of, in fact, I'm skimming through it very quickly, considering that Demon Slayer's second season is going to be coming later uh, down the line, a couple weeks from now, but the first seven episodes of this season are going to be covering just the Demon Slayer arc again, which is weird in hindsight, but still understandable considering that Ufotable can essentially just get seven, well, in this case, six episodes, like, just out on broadcast that they don't necessarily have to change at all. The only one that was different so far is that the first episode was essentially going about Rengoku's escapades before he ended up jumping on the train in the first place and why he was there and why Tanjiro and the crew had to meet him there in the first place. So the intro episode was definitely not necessarily fun, but a good start. I know that episodes 2 through 7 are going to be just not really a retelling, but just a recap of the all of the events of the Mugen train arc, and then episode 8, I believe, is going to be the first episode leading into what I believe is the uh, district arc. And I haven't necessarily read any of the Demon Slayer manga, but I'm still... It's definitely one of these shonens where I understand the hype. I definitely know why people are really excited about this and why that's the case, but I've definitely had, like, more fun with other shows that have been coming out and filling that gap, especially around the shonen aspect, especially like through Jujutsu Kaisen, like I definitely appreciated that more than I did Demon Slayer in any aspect. I can definitely understand why I believe Demon Slayer's 19th episode blew up the internet as it did, but I don't know. I'm definitely more interested in seeing the Jujutsu Kaisen Zero film that's going to be coming out sometime next year over the sequel series that we're getting now for Demon Slayer, but I don't know. I'm just going to give it a watch and at least I'll be able to highlight and rewatch all the moments that I found 
that were pretty stellar inside the Mugen Train film anyway, so at least I'll be able to recap on something that I know that I'm going to enjoy for the most part. Now, I did focus a bit on this show in the previous season, which is Aquatope, and now we're going through the second half of it for this season, since the first 12 episodes were definitely something that I expected to be like, alright, it's a PA Works original, so it can go either way on in terms of quality, and it was definitely something that I was expecting, like I said in the previous episode, that it was just going to be okay, there's a supernatural element to this aquarium, they're going to be using it to keep the old rundown aquarium like back in business, and everybody's going to be buddy-buddy, and everybody's going to be working towards their goals, and they're all going to be happy. And then the aquarium closes down, and then it doesn't matter in the end. And now, even though the people who ended up working at the aquarium previously thankfully have a good job lined up immediately after termination here, considering that a larger aquarium just finished construction a couple months prior, and they're going to be able to go through and take up new roles at that establishment down in Okinawa. But this is definitely a season that I'm much more interested and invested in previously, because now everybody is more of a fish out of water than they have been before. They're going to have to be more realistic, considering that now they have a much larger scale, more animals and aquamarines to take care of, more people that they're going to have to come in contact with and have to communicate with, and definitely higher stakes, considering that if they can't necessarily keep a job at this place, then who's to say that any aquarium afterwards is going to give them a chance to be hired again? And so I'm really curious to see how this kind of enthusiasm with our main character is going to be put towards a more realistic uh, form of employment, especially with something larger and something that really doesn't give two fucks about her experience or her kind of engagement, which is kind of weird, since it's just kind of like, wait a second, you have a teenager fresh out of high school who has worked at an aquarium for, like, at least six years, you don't think that experience is valuable? And kind of the same way how one of the main characters, who we did end up getting a realization as to why she's so shitty, but it's just kind of like, wait a second, so you think that she was playworking for the last six years of her job and trying to keep the entire place afloat in the state that her grandfather wasn't necessarily working there anymore. And you thought that she was just, oh yeah, no, I don't give a shit about this job. I don't give a shit about aquamarine life. I don't give a shit about anybody of the people who work for me. I'm just there for fun. And it's just kind of like, with the new revelation, I kind of understand that she's too stressed to really dig in and kind of like try and understand why she feels that way. But it's like, I don't think that's a really logical outlook for somebody to have, especially for the people that they ended up working at in the first place, but I don't know. I'm kind of curious to see how they're going to be developing the new cast of characters that they've all introduced throughout this new season with this new aquarium and this new environment, but at least I have a more positive and a more interested outlook now than what I did when I started watching it 13, 14 weeks ago. So now these two are manga series that are getting adaptations, one that have that has been more looked at and one that has been more, like, been hyped around it for probably years now that it's finally ended up coming onto the screen. So at least the one that I know is smaller, but I'm still interested in, is that there is one that's called Uzai Senpai or Annoying Senpai, and it's just like a workplace comedy slash romance slash, uh, like, just, just very basic slice of life. 
But in this case, it's like, okay, you know what? You're doing work comedy and a work style romance for people in their like early to late 20s. It's like, oh, wow, that's my gang. That's my age. That's my shit. All right. And it's definitely funny for since I've been reading it for the past couple of years. And I was like, oh, yeah, no, it's definitely going to be interesting to kind of see how they like move forward and how they decide to adapt this piece of work. And I definitely don't feel like especially with a lot of short-running manga series that I just always feel like 24 episodes is just too much and they have to like put in so much filler to try and pad the episodes just to make the runtime and this kind of feels like one of those series unfortunately it's still fun it's always with these series whenever there's a workplace romance it's never the main duo that's always the one that's the most interesting it's always the side characters it's always everybody that's circling around them and trying to just kind of like it's, it's not a fact of will they, won't they? It's just literally the powers that be in the mangaka that creates this work is like, okay, I have to stretch this relationship out to its very extreme so that I can keep writing chapters. And so they still say at a safe distance, but they know that they both have feelings for each other. But I definitely have to keep this to the point where at least I can like run it for another couple of months and another couple of chapters before I decide to make them an official couple. And then I can start working on how exactly that kind of relationship would work for more content and afterwards. I don't know. We'll see where it goes. So yeah, so far it's just kind of like, yeah, it's fine. But I'm definitely like cranking out the playback to like one and a half times speed for the majority of it. Considering that it definitely feels like the pacing is just a little too slow for an adaptation for that. Even though I still have a bit of fun with it, especially with the side characters who I feel that are a lot more interesting in hindsight. But yeah, no. It's still a fun time to essentially have, and I'm at least enjoying it to a good enough degree to keep watching it every week. And now a more high-profile one in the sense of manga adaptations that's coming through is uh, Komi-san, or Komi Can't Communicate. And this has been a comedy manga that has been running for a number of years, and it's definitely been a highlight for the majority of not only the manga subreddit, but the Mal community that has been waiting for this to get an adaptation for years. And so it has finally gone through, and it's in Netflix jail. Because of course it is. Now, I will go through at least the first episode, considering that they did do a really good job in the adaptation. They did a really good job, especially considering how silent the main character is in the beginning, because she literally has a communication disorder, even though she is this long, black-haired beauty. She's incredibly stoic. She's tall. She's slender. She's really good at school. She's got a good brain on her shoulders. But the problem is is that she is so commutatively deficient that she literally cannot keep a conversation up to anybody in her life besides her parents. And even then, that's a, that's a stretch. But um, how it was able to go in terms of the chalkboard scene in the first episode, especially with the setup, especially with the amount of text boxes that always surrounds almost every character whenever there is a heel turn or whenever there is a joke that has to go through and answer for you to get introduced to this incredibly large cast, I still think they did a really good job with the adaptation, but more so to the fan subbers, I would have to give that sort of commendability, and definitely more the production that's going through, because the director has definitely been doing a good job as of late, and especially how they were able to move this episode forward, but the only people that were able to do this one justice in terms of translation and subtitles were the fan subtranslators, considering that whatever... Netflix decided to do was definitely not enough, considering that the amount of 
untranslated text that was left on screen was just so half-assed and so just underwhelming to that degree is just that, okay, why would you just even have somebody translate this in the first place? Where it's just, oh yeah, no, but we need the translators to know what they're saying, where like half of the show is visual comedy and it's just kind of like, okay, so now you're just going to almost like like take out half of that comedic delivery considering that you can't necessarily translate or even to the point where yes this is a comedy but there are really good like um well thought out heartwarming moments to go along with that but even if you can't get those into the fold then why would you even try in the first place and where it's like oh well netflix we got the money we got the time and of course we know that this is an incredibly popular series so of course we're going to pick it up for licensing and it's just i don't know man if if you have the option and you feel like there's something missing whenever you go and watch it on netflix which is thankfully it is out now and you feel like something's missing, go and watch a fan-subbed or fan-translated version of the work, because whatever gaps that you feel like is missing has been painstakingly readapted and reinserted into this work so that it is much more, well, you know, communicated. And so at least in that way, the viewer can have just as well of an experience as the characters can. <sighs> so I understand that I might have done this joke several months ago when I realized that this series was announced, but considering at length how I was talking to one of my buddies, uh, Johnny, at how, like, do you know how interesting and how hype and how ridiculous it would be if we actually got a hockey anime? Like, could you just imagine how dynamic it would be as long as they wouldn't have to focus the majority of their resources on making, unfortunately, the characters probably CG because there would have to be so much movement and so much, uh, dynamic considering that there would be so much movement and so many dynamic shots that would have to go through whenever there, it comes into a hockey game. Like, could you just imagine how hype that would be and how ridiculous that could actually be put onto the screen? And definitely at that point in time, there must have been a curl on one of the monkey paws. And at that time, I know that on a monkey's paw, somewhere lurking, one of its fingers curled. And less than two weeks later... We ended up getting this anime announced, The Pride of Orange, and it was going to be a girls' idol hockey series. And I just did not know what to think about at the time. Like, I'll, I'll at least get the positive stuff out of the way. The fact that they were able to go through and all of the bodies of the hockey players, they're all like animated in 2D, and they're given that detail, and the only pieces that are normally... Uh, like put into like a 3D modeling or CG rendering to just to lighten the workload. Um, it's only the puck and sometimes the sticks. And I was like, wow, they were able to actually like have a lot of good um, dynamic shots between the majority of the fights along the boards. Uh, like whenever somebody has to get a decent pass up and down the lanes. Like I'm really pleasantly surprised that we were able to get like more of a two majority 2D aspect to the animation of the show. Um, but I will admit that you are really shooting from the stars and you know that this is fiction and you know that this is definitely like a really optimistic anime logic speaking, but the fact that at some point in time, these girls are going to go on with Japan and become the women's World Cup hockey champions and beat Canada in the finals for the gold 
which was cut and which was even more ridiculous in hindsight to the fact that after they won the game they ended up doing an idol performance concert in the middle of the ice the fact that japan won the gold was more of a fantasy than it was actually seeing a bunch of girls play a game of hockey and then immediately do an idol concert on the ice right after the match <laughs> i just i just didn't really know what to think about it at that point but um i don't know it's there it's just it's cute girls doing hockey things, unfortunately. It's really moving forward with the pacing, especially in the most recent episodes where it's like, okay, we're going to get you to play a team several months down the line. Fast forward a couple of months, their friend ends up moving away, and now we're going to be getting this transfer student leading in, which currently at this time is definitely a hockey veteran, and she knows what she's doing while the rest of them literally started playing hockey just a handful of months ago. Well, actually, the majority of them did. I think two characters, they both played hockey for a bit, and then one of them got into figure skating, and one of, and then they quit, and then the other one just quit hockey entirely because they didn't necessarily want to play hockey without their good friend, and I definitely understand that and appreciate that, but I don't know. I, I will admit, the only reason that anybody, including myself, would pick up the show is because of the hockey aspect, and they haven't really gotten too nitty-gritty into the different pieces of how hockey works just yet, but I am kind of curious to see how that's going to be like moving forward. <laughs> but let me just put it this way. I have absolutely no faith and no high expectations for this series, even though it's the only piece, I'm pretty sure it's the only piece of anime that we've ever gotten that is going to be focusing on hockey. So I guess there's that. <laughs> um, and so the more interesting ones that have been going through, Tact OP Destiny is one that... I'm very tentatively watching. It's a co-production between not only Studio Mappa, but Studio Madhouse. And it's essentially this series where an asteroid hits and aliens envelop the Earth, or at least uh, most of North America, and they absolutely hate music. So music is outlawed until this company called Symphotica ends up going through and produces musical weapons from the other, like, better aliens that also crash-landed with this asteroid. And so they're... They actually fight the aliens that have def definitely going through, but it's been a number of years. The treaty was signed, and after the majority of the aliens were killed, so that nobody can play music. And our main character, who is a pianist by trade, and also one of these uh, conductors that conduct the music arts, who are these good aliens that have enveloped the bodies of humans to essentially fight off these, you know, aliens slash demons that have invaded the world whenever there is music to be played. Because, sure, the treaty has gone through, and they've eliminated the majority of them on the planet, but, of course, a lot of them are still in hiding, some of them are still nesting, some of them are still, like, waiting for a chance to strike, and the fact that they still exist, music has been essentially outlawed throughout the entirety of the world. But the animation and how it was transcribed in the first episode, which in this case was done by Madhouse, did a really good job in selling the tone, in selling the dynamic between the three main characters, in selling the action, and kind of in selling how the music played and involved gets conducted into not only the work, but the fights themselves. And I still think that's good. It's just that I literally have no expectations leading into this, and even though a lot of it was cool from what I've seen so far for the first handful of episodes, nothing is really striking me that even though I know that this is an original piece of work, that it's going to be completely overwhelming to anybody who ends up picking it up and watching it, because it's something that I could maybe recommend if you're looking for a cool action series with music involved, 
But otherwise, it's not something that I would really like throw in. It's like, oh my goodness, this is one of the best shows of the season. You guys have to watch it. It's thankfully not on that category. And the problem is, is that the two shows of the season that I would absolutely recommend also kind of feel like there's a bit of a barrier to it. So I think I'll get rid of the first one out of the way, which is Heike Monogatari. And the only reason why I ended up picking this one up is considering that A, it's done by Science Saru, but B, this is also the first major directorial work from Naoko Yamada outside of Kyoto Animation. And I absolutely love every piece of her work, but the problem, especially with the trauma that I would imagine she kind of felt, even though she wasn't a part of the arson attack that took place a couple of years ago, I would imagine she still felt that lingering sense of danger and that lingering sense of just negativity and just absolute chaos that kind of like brought about such a event like that. This is the first time that she's essentially gone outside of Kyoto Animation in years. And even though this is done by uh, Science Saru, who at this point in time is essentially what I just like to call Masaki Yuasa's just child studio, but now Masaki Yuasa is taking a long extended break and so now they're doing a handful of pieces, including like this one, with different directors and different staff. And it's not, it's because I have l almost no expertise in terms of Japanese history, I can't necessarily explain this in the best of my, I can't necessarily explain this in a good way to the best of my ability, but I'll at least try. Considering that this is a dedicated piece of Japanese history that has been retold several times, but this is probably the first time that it has gone into such length in anime. Considering that Heike Monogatari basically goes through and describes the tale of the Heike, who were a clan that was caught in the, between the struggle of the Taira and the Mitamoto clans at the end of the 12th century in the Genpei War. And so this takes place basically in the late 1100s, and the, fall, the rapid rise and the fall of the Heike in between the majority of those warring clans, where we follow Biwa, who is the, uh, I guess, the main storyteller of this, considering that she has been inserted into these very large and mainstay events in Japanese history, and were given the perspective through her eyes, one of which are special, considering that she is unfortunately able to see the future of anybody who she ends up looking into. Not, not with both. She can at least control it to a degree where if she covers her, her one good eye, then she's able to see the future of the one that she decides to look upon. But thankfully, it's not something that is entirely outside of her control. And so she ends up meeting Shigemori, who is the eldest son of the clan leader, the Taika clan's leader, and essentially brings her into his family, considering that he empathizes with her situation and considering that he also has a special eye inside of his midst as well. Unfortunately, all it is able to do is see the spirits of the dead who essentially wander the land. And that eye definitely in particular focuses solely on the death and regrets of the people who had died across their land, which of course in the middle of these trying times death was rampant, whether it was death by famine, death by disease, or death by insurrection and rebellion. Unfortunately, that was something that was ravaging the majority of these uh, landscapes for a good amount of time inside of Japanese history. And considering that Biwa was incredibly angry with him in their first meeting because his own clan killed Biwa's father, she is just incredibly reluctant to reveal his own future only to say that his clan is doomed. And of course, 
Shigemori essentially wants to not only help her and make up for the deeds that ended up getting her father killed, he also wants to include her help and just hope and pray how he can stop the demise of his own clan, the demise of his family, the deaths of his own siblings and his own children. And so it's essentially just this adaptation of a story that's filled with both happiness and sorrow and a very pivotal chapter in Japanese history, which on paper sounds epic and sounds like it should have a lot of interest, but it's definitely a hard sell, especially even with the people that have been attributed to the production. So it's definitely something that I would wait on people giving a shot until the story is concluded at the end of this season, which... I think is going to be 12 episodes, but it could be 24. It still hasn't given its full episode list yet. But I would definitely say in the very moment, if you're incredibly interested about Japanese history and how that is, and how these large-scale events were able to shake the foundation of the country as a core, then that's definitely something that I would recommend if that's what interests you. And now I guess so far from the first two episodes that I've watched, I would say my favorite season... And so even with all those put together so far, I would probably have to say that this next show is currently my favorite of the season, even though it's after two episodes, and that is currently Lupin III's uh, Part Six adaptation. Well, not necessarily adaptation, more it's just kind of like continuation of the story, because he's also bringing about the green jacket, and the green jacket was a mainstay for him in Part 1, so I'm kind of curious to see how that's going to relate, and how that's going to translate into what the rest of it's going to. And it's... Like I said before, Lupin is kind of an interesting sell, considering that there are technically like 500 episodes of Lupin between five parts, and there's like 20 films, as well as like 10 additional collaboration films with the, with uh, like differing but relatable series, and there's just so much in its catalog that even I haven't touched yet, because for me in particular, the only pieces of Lupin that I've touched is not even... I guess the one that would be most relatable to people outside of anime is that there is apparently a really popular French adaptation of Lupin that is a more modern take with a more different modern thief. But for Lupin the Third in particular, I've seen parts four and parts five, currently watching part six. I've seen the Fua conspiracy film. I've seen I've seen the Lupin the Third, the first 3G CG animated film that ended up coming out last year. And then possibly my favorite Lupin work currently is The Castle of Cagliostro, who of course was directed by Hayao Miyazaki. And so this season in particular, as every more modern season does, is that they introduce a handful of new characters, but one major deuteragonist or antagonist in some cases that gets introduced to the fold. In this case, they are doing a modern take of Sherlock Holmes. And so the majority of the promotional work for this series in particular, and this season, is that it is going to be the modern Lupin III versus the modern Sherlock Holmes. Which, of course, is like, okay, how does a Sherlock Holmes exist in the 21st century? And it's just kind of like, well, apparently in this world, the modicum of Sherlock Holmes is passed down from person to person, not through... Uh, a hereditary sort of style where it's like the sons and the descendants, but it's more like a title to be imposed by essentially the greatest self-taught and self-directed detective currently in that era in particular. And only they have the opportunity to pass it on. And currently, the Sherlock Holmes that we get in this part, even though only two episodes are out at this time, is very competent and very up to the task of being inside of Lupin the Third story considering that he is very tactile, he's active, he's inventive, he's quick-witted, also thinks very quickly on his feet, and still has more than enough 
physical modicums for him to keep up with not only Zenigata, but even Jigen, as well as Goemon and Fujiko. And for the story at this part in particular, there is a very large shady organization at the heart of the United Kingdom who has been pulling the strings since the end of World War II. So I'm kind of curious to see how that's going to go. I would assume that... Okay, yes, just like the previous parts, this is also going to have 24 episodes, so at least in that case, I'll be able to enjoy this for two straight seasons. So I'm really kind of curious to see how that's going to like move forward and how this Sherlock Lupin story with one of history's greatest thieves is going to deal and bounce off of one of history's greatest detectives. So at least that wraps up what I've been jumping into and what I'm definitely going to be interested in moving on towards the fall 2021 season. So hopefully at least the shows that I've got and a handful of them that have actually piqued my interest will give me the opportunity to watch these grow and hopefully they'll be able to kind of like move forward and adapt to as the season goes along and give everybody more than enough to essentially chew on before next season, which is going to be incredibly massive and just a gong show in terms of the originals, in terms of the sequels, and then in terms of the returning faces that we're going to be able to see once this next season comes out. So this is definitely one that... And so this is definitely an episode that I tried to fit in through the rest of it to kind of like catch up on the rest of it with the gaps that I left between here and Ontario. And then I will be introducing another special episode leading into this year's Halloween, and I floated a couple of ideas just to kind of see how much I would be able to talk about and how much I would actually be able to speak about on such short notice, but if you watch the previous episode, you'll definitely understand that I have a bone to pick with a specific horror-related series that unfortunately didn't end as gracefully as many would hoped and has left a bad taste in many mouths, including my own. So at least on that note, I'll catch you at the end of this week. Cheers. Cheers.